March 31st, 2010, Cleveland police in the suburb of Garfield Heights attempted to pull over a motorist for a traffic violation. The driver took off with the police in hot pursuit, speeds exceeding 90 miles per hour through several suburban communities there in the Cleveland area. Finally, the driver stopped his car, and he and the passenger jumped out of the car and took off for a fence, a high fence that was nearby. They scaled the fence. They dropped over the other side of that fence, only to find out that they had landed in the prison yard for the women's state prison. (laughs) They were arrested. No escape, along with two other passengers that stayed in the car. You can run from the law, but you can't escape judgment. Hebrews 12 this morning, as we pick up in our study, Hebrews 12, verse 25 down to 29, God teaches us that his law is holy. And all who violate that law will be judged. The people of Israel at Mount Sinai were scared by God's holiness. They were judged by God's law. We looked at that last Sunday in the previous verses. There was no escape apart from God's grace. Because that's the escape. The grace God provides. So if there was no escape, if you ran away from the law, then there certainly is no escape if you turn away from God's grace. Turning from Christ means no escape from judgment, verses 25 to 27 this morning. See to it, verse 25, Hebrews 12, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. All right, we come here to the fifth of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Let me summarize once again. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who were in Hebrews, of course, who were in danger of turning back from following Christ to following the Mosaic law. They had professed faith in Christ but we're now in danger of falling away from God's grace back into legalism. And the book of Hebrews is structured around five warning passages to his readers and by God's Spirit to us as well. Five warning passages all designed to warn people not to turn away from Christ and Not to try to earn your own salvation through your works, through the law, 
because it'll never work. You cannot be good enough to earn your way to God. And in verse 25 here, we have a command at the start of this fifth warning passage. Do not reject the one who is speaking. And it's a command in the Greek text. The word play looks back to verse 24, which we looked at last Sunday, where he concludes that section by saying, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So in verse 24, it is the blood of Christ that speaks. So do not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And his blood speaks louder than the blood of Abel under the old covenant. Do not reject Christ who is speaking to you right now. And the word for refuse or reject means literally to beg off. It meant to decline or avoid something or someone by begging off from whatever was expected. You know, you don't want to go to dinner with that person, so you beg off. You make excuses about why you don't want to go. Well, don't beg off from God's grace. People were begging off from listening to Christ to go their own way in life. Don't do that, we're warned here. Maybe you know people like that. Always there's a reason, right? Later, another time, I'm busy begging off, declining, refusing, avoiding. Don't do that. Why? Because if people who were warned at Mount Sinai, did not escape. How much more will those who are warned from God, speaking from heaven, through the blood of Jesus Christ, not escape? If you can't escape the law, how can you escape if you refuse God's grace? God's holy law judges all sinners, and there is no escape. But God made a way of escape, by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you turn away from the way of escape, how can you expect to escape? It won't happen. Now, this has been the warning of Hebrews all along. Back in Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's anybody who turns away from Christ. That's what people are really doing when they turn away from Christ. How can you expect to escape when you trample underfoot the blood of Christ, our Savior? All the way back in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 3, we read, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Unfortunately, I think many today who hear that warning, maybe some in this room, think, yeah, it's no big deal. I'm not that bad a person. And God's a good, loving God. 
How bad can God's punishment be anyway? He loves everyone. He accepts everyone. I'll take my chances. We're like the little boy at the elementary school in Arizona where Becky Barnes teaches. They had a problem. The school had a problem with students throwing rocks at recess time. Now that can be a problem. And so they, they decided they needed to do something about it. And they made an announcement on the intercom of the school warning students that anyone caught throwing rocks at recess time on the playground would be taken home by the principal personally. Big warning. That same day, at recess in the afternoon, a teacher caught a kindergartner throwing a rock. Didn't you hear what the principal told you this morning, the surprise teacher said to the kindergartner in disbelief? Yeah, replied the proud lad, grinning from ear to ear. I get to go home in the principal's car. (laughs) So much for the warning, right? Not taken seriously. Not understanding the gravity of the warning. Like little children, people today often do not understand the gravity of God's warning in passages like these. They didn't back then either. So the author of Hebrews goes on to try to explain to them how serious this warning is. He says, look, God shook the earth once already with his voice. But now God promises to shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. Everything, the universe. Now he is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Haggai, who predicted the day when God would shake the world of the nations so badly that all of those nations will end up giving him glory. Haggai chapter 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is where the quote is taken from. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. God owns it all. We don't own the wealth of this world. You don't own a single penny, and neither do I. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett don't own a single penny of the wealth of this world. It's God's. Every bit of it. And one day, God is going to shake this universe like a hurricane shakes an apple tree. And the fruit will come falling down to the ground. And everyone will realize who owns it all. In the meantime, God sometimes shakes in little microcosmic shakings, doesn't he, in personal lives, just to teach us who really is in charge and who really owns it all. Remember, I am the Lord Almighty, he says. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, and I'm going to shake this universe one day.
when God shakes all these things that he has created, they will be removed at that time, he says in this verse. And the word for removing here in Hebrews is a Greek word from which we get our word metathesis or metathesize. Cells metathesize when they change so completely that they become lethal instead of healthy. They're not even the same cell anymore. A metathesis is a transformation. It is total change from one thing into another. So there is coming a day when God will so shake up this entire universe that all the created things in this universe will metathesize into a whole new world. And Peter wrote that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. He said, but the day of the Lord will come like a, thief in the he- like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. All this stuff goes up in smoke. Now you probably know that intellectually. I know it intellectually. But we don't exactly live the- that way, do we? All this stuff goes up in smoke. He says the only things that will remain here in Hebrews, the only things that will remain are the things that cannot be shaken. What is it that cannot be shaken according to verse 27? What is it that is eternal? Well, verse 28 tells us, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The one thing is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Anything that is a part of the kingdom doesn't get removed. That's eternal. That's where you invest if you're smart. Because those are the things that last forever. The things of the kingdom are eternal. Those are the only things that will last when God shakes the universe in judgment. So you invest in the stocks of eternity. Put your energy into the things of the kingdom. Everything else will be gone in the day that God judges this universe. The first summer that Craig Larson and his wife were dating, she worked as a temp at a bank. In the first two weeks that she had the job, she quickly noticed some extremely unprofessional behavior among the team of four people that she worked with and their supervisor. The supervisor, who was a generation older, was was very friendly, and all of the college age and young adults that were in the office enjoyed going and spending long times with this supervisor. They would sit around her desk. They would have extended coffee breaks, extended lunch breaks there in the office. And they would gossip about everybody, and she was very friendly with them. There was one person, however, in the office that the supervisor was not friendly to. It was a woman in her 30s who had come on staff just a week or so before Craig Larson's wife had come on staff. And she was shunned. 
If she walked up and tried to join the conversation at the supervisor's desk, everybody just sort of clammed up and stopped and they wouldn't include her. And they sort of rolled their eyes and they made disparaging comments about this woman whenever she was out of earshot. It was obvious that she was an intrusion that they didn't like. Two weeks into her temp job, Craig's wife walked into office on Monday morning. She was surprised to find a totally different scenario. Everyone was at their desk working diligently. There was no gossiping. There was no coffee breaks. There was everybody focused on their work. The previous supervisor had been replaced. And guess who the replacement was? The woman everybody had shunned. Apparently, what they found out later actually was, management had hired this woman to be the replacement, but they sent her in incognito weeks in advance to find out what the office was really doing. And now, she was in charge. And the whole place changed. Christ came into this world incognito. He came into this world as a baby who grew up and died on a cross, mocked and scorned. And people in this world, you know it and I know it, still mock and scorn Jesus Christ. They use his name in vain. They roll their eyes, so to speak. They think nothing of Jesus. He's a powerless figure to them if they even think he existed. Well, one day, one day Jesus is going to shake this universe. That is the absolute truth. He will shake this universe so thoroughly that all who are not part of his kingdom will be destroyed. Only his kingdom will remain. And we receive that kingdom how? By accepting God's grace. Only one way to enter the kingdom. The grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28. Therefore, he writes, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, it's eternal, lasts forever, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Gripping grace produces acceptable service. We receive an unshakable kingdom. The kingdom we are part of will last forever. We receive this kingdom by God's grace, so let's grip that grace as we serve God acceptably. The New American Standard translates this verb, let us show gratitude. Let us show gratitude. The word translated show literally means to have, to hold, to grip. Hang on to. That's what it means. 
And the word translated gratitude is the word grace. Let us grip grace. That's literally what it says. Now, the word for grace in the New Testament came to be used quite often for gratitude or thanksgiving. When we receive grace, we give grace, and giving grace is giving thanks, is gratitude. See, you cannot incur a debt for grace because it's not grace anymore, right? The only debt we can incur for grace is the debt of giving grace, giving gratitude. And so it came to mean giving gratitude. Grace and gratitude in New Testament theology are very closely related. We give thanks, we express thanks because we have received grace. Gratitude should be the end result of grace. God's favor should result in our thanksgiving. So grace transforms us. We are changed because we receive God's grace. We, we are new people, the New Testament says. We are now kingdom people. And it is through this grace that we are now motivated to serve God. Service to God is an expression of gratitude to God. It's the only motive for ministry, really, that is acceptable to God. Kingdom people are called to serve, and we serve, he says, acceptably by God's grace. Paul wrote, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There you have it. If we want our service to be acceptable, we must do it out of the grace, gratitude, motivation. No other motivation will produce service that is acceptable to God. Here's the way it works. We received God's grace, right? Christ died on the cross. We deserve to die. He died in our place. It's all of grace. And we accept that grace. And that's how we become part of the kingdom. That's how we become kingdom people. We receive the grace. And that produces giving grace or gratitude, right? And as we give grace or gratitude, that motivates us to serve God. The grace-gratitude motive makes our ministry to God acceptable. He is pleased with our service when it rises from the motive of grace-gratitude. So you want to serve God acceptably? It has to come from that grace-gratitude motive. Sometimes I hear Christians say something like this, and I suppose, I suppose I've said something like this at times, and I suppose we all have said something like this at times. I've been doing all this work, and no one seems to appreciate it. No one said thank you. 
No one thanks me for the work I've done. I'm unappreciated. All I get is criticism. I guess I'll just quit and do something else or go somewhere else. Well, that thought process, if we're honest, gets us sometimes, doesn't it? Because nobody's applauding us. Nobody's saying, wow, you did great. You're wonderful. You're God's gift to us. Thank you so much. It makes us feel good. It makes me feel good. Nobody does that. And so we can get into this thought process. And the result is this sort of dissatisfaction, right? This unhappiness we feel. We feel unappreciated. And so, what's the use? Why bother? Stop serving. And I see it happen and you see it happen all the time. But this is not acceptable service, is it? to God we don't serve to get thanks we serve to give thanks that's the motive that makes it acceptable and there is a world of difference between those two motives for whatever you do family, church whatever you're doing for God is kingdom work there's a world of difference between those two motives serving to get thanks or serving to give thanks And the only one that is acceptable to God is the serving to give thanks. So if the grace-gratitude motive isn't moving our service, it's not acceptable. He's not pleased with it. Now, he may use it. God uses lots of service. He uses uses my service and your service even when it isn't done with the right motive. (laughs) That's grace too, by the way. (laughs) He still uses it. But that doesn't mean it's well-pleasing. And by the way, acceptable is the Greek word that means well-pleasing. See, doesn't mean that it's well-pleasing to him. doesn't mean that he takes delight. doesn't mean that he smiles at our service, even if he uses it. If we want the smile of God on our service, then it has to come from that grace-gratitude motive. So, teaching Sunday school, working in Awana, Singing on a worship team are all ministries. But they are not well-pleasing to God if we're doing it because we want to get thanks and be appreciated. Not only that, but sooner or later we'll quit anyway. Because we will feel unappreciated. Our gifts are not applauded. People don't like what we're doing or how we're doing it, right? Now, the way to keep serving is to serve with the right motive and to come back to that motive over and over again. And that's the grace-gratitude motive. It's the only way to stay, stay with it in God's work, His kingdom work. Whatever God has called you to do for Him. I mean, we all like to be liked and appreciated, but we cannot serve with that objective. And we probably ought to be better at appreciating one another, most definitely. But we cannot serve with that objective. 
We want to please Him. And to please Him is to hang on to the grace which produces the gratitude. Because He's done so much for me, I'm going to do this for Him. And our service is moved by God's grace and becomes acceptable. But that is not all in this verse. That's not enough either. We serve God acceptably when we serve out of the grace-gratitude motive with reverence and respect. We don't serve God casually. We're not slack about it. We're not giving God sort of the back end of our schedule or the last dregs of our budget or the time when we're just sort of worn out and we have nothing more to give. Okay, I'll give that to God. No, no, no. We give God our best because we're giving with reverence and respect. And we don't just run to God sort of casually like the big Santa Claus in the sky and he's jolly and good and all of that good stuff. No. Not casual with reverence and respect. Awe. That's the concept here. Because he is a holy God. We want to do our best. The desire to sing to the very best of our ability, is because we reverence God. The desire to teach that class to the very best of our ability is because we honor Him. He's done so much for me. And He is holy. And He is awesome. And He is great. That's why I do it. That's why I want to be the best. Not because I want somebody to applaud me on the, and pat me on the back and say, you are awesome. No, I want somebody to say, God is awesome. Right? That's why we serve and how we serve acceptably to him. Our God is an awesome God. And he deserves our best service, not our leftovers. So maybe you've served. Maybe you've been unappreciated. And you feel like nobody thanks you. Who are you serving? God? Someone else? Yourself? Just because we believe in God's grace does not mean that we forget God's greatness. Notice verse 29 as he closes. I mean, this is why we ought to do it with awe, with reverence and respect. We serve in reverence and respect because our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. July 2010. Paul Crowther, professor of astrophysics from the University of Sheffield's Department of Physics and Astronomy, announced that he and his research team had discovered a star they described as the brightest star ever found in the universe to date. The mass of the star is roughly 265 times that of our sun. So it's 265 times bigger than our sun. 
the brightness of this star is some 10 million times brighter than the light coming from our sun. The star, currently named R136A1, is not twice as bright as our sun. It's not 10 times as bright as our sun. It's not even 1,000 times as bright as our sun. It is 10 million times brighter than our sun. Have you tried looking at the sun lately? This is 10 million times brighter. What does scripture say? That God is a being who lives in unapproachable light. Try 100 million times greater, right? Unapproachable light is where God lives. Our God is a consuming fire. No one has ever seen him in his reality. Only his manifestations. Grace, you see, never ever denies the holiness of God. Don't put grace against holiness. The Bible does not. Grace never denies the holiness and the greatness of God. Grace is so filled with the holiness of God that we appreciate how he granted us his favor, he who is so holy. And we who are so unholy and deserve to be consumed by the fire of God's holiness are given grace to be part of his eternal kingdom and serve him forever. And that is what moves our service with respect and awe and honor and reverence. We serve out of gratitude for what he has done for us, but also with great reverence for who he is. Our God is a consuming fire, and he has given us the grace to serve him. Putting it together then, Beth Moore, I think, does a nice job of this. She and her husband Keith spent some time in war-torn Angola to draw attention to tens of thousands of malnourished people there. They were changed forever, she said. And she wrote, I learned something in one of the rural villages that will mark my teaching in response to the word of God. As we stood there trying to absorb the sights and smells of living death, our new friend Isaac Pretorius said, one of the most frustrating things is that in the villages where they receive seed, they often eat the seed rather than planting it and bringing forth the harvest. They're starving. So you give them seed and what do they do? They eat the seed instead of planting the seed so that they could later get a greater harvest. They eat the seed. She wrote, I couldn't get the statement out of my mind and suddenly had an answer to the question I most often ask God. Why do some people see the results of the word and others don't? Why have many of us read books on forgiving people, known the teachings were true and right, cried over them, marked them with highlighters, yet remain in our bitterness because we ate the seed instead of sowing it? Here's what God teaches us. Grace, God's grace, is the seed. It was meant to be sowed, not just eaten, you see. God sows his grace in us. Grace, when it produces fruit in us, 
is meant to be sowed in others. That's the process he's talking about here. God sows his grace in our hearts, expecting us to sow grace in others. So grace should change us from the inside out. The foundation for our lives, everything we do in his kingdom work, is always the cross, isn't it? It's God's grace. Visitors to the Smithsonian Museum of American History see the flag that flew over Fort McHenry when Francis Scott Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner in 1814. The original flag measured 42 by 30 feet. It's a huge flag, immense in size, and that allowed Key, of course, to see it from 10 miles out to sea following a night of gunfire. But that means that a flag that large, how could it fly on a pole 189 feet up in the air? And they discovered in one of the barracks, buried uh, down in the ground, two oak timbers, eight feet by eight feet, joined as a cross. And that's where they realized the support system for that pole and flag were located. Not only did the cross help rangers locate the original site, but it explained to them how a pole that, that tall could stand without falling over in stormy weather. So the unseen device provided that firm foundation. Folks, whatever you do, in God's kingdom work, it comes back to what? The foundation, which is the cross, the grace of Christ. That's the foundation for our faith. When you have that foundation and you serve out of that foundation, then you're not dependent upon the appreciation of others, the success of this world, The foundation for everything is the grace of God in the cross of Christ. The unshakable kingdom is founded on the grace of Christ. Because God has given us his grace, and we are then part of his kingdom, we receive his kingdom, and we serve in that kingdom out of gratitude. Our desire is then to sow that grace into the lives of every person we meet, in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, on the job. That is kingdom living. Grace living is kingdom living. These are kingdom values, and these cannot be shaken. They will last forever. Vance is an African-American living in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. And he's a father, and he loves the kids in the neighborhood. He loves his own kids. One night about 9 p.m., there was a knock at Vance's door. The 16-year-old boy who lived a few doors down needed help tying his tie. See, he had a big presentation in school the next day, and he didn't have a dad And he had never had anybody show him how to tie a tie, a necktie. And so he came down to Vance because he thought that he as a dad would know how to tie a necktie. So Vance helped him 
tie his necktie for this big presentation in school. And then the 16-year-old boy, kind of embarrassed, but he asked, do you have any shoes I could borrow? He didn't have any nice shoes to wear for this big presentation in school, and he wanted to do a good job and make a good impression. Well, the minute he asked, Vance thought about a brand new pair of shoes in his closet that were still in the box that he'd paid $60 for, for himself, and he hadn't even had a chance to wear them yet. But he said to the young man, well, let me go take a look. Meanwhile, he's looking in his closet. He's trying to think of any other shoes but the $60 pair I just bought. And besides, they probably wouldn't fit this young 16-year-old anyway. He mentioned to it to his wife that that was the thought in his head. And she said, well, maybe God's trying to tell you something. So finally, okay, he took the brand new shoes in the box and he brought them out to the boy. And his last hope was that they wouldn't fit. I mean, how many 16-year-olds wear size 12? They fit perfectly. (laughs) Okay, take the shoes. And off the 16-year-old boy went to do his presentation. A week later, Vance and his wife had decided to start a Bible study for the teens there in the complex where they lived in this city. And so they... Promote, began promoting this uh, Sunday evening Bible study, inviting teenagers. They, uh, they bought some Bibles for the teens. They, they bought seven Bibles. That, that's a lot of faith to buy seven Bibles for teenagers who don't go to church. They bought seven Bibles, and they held their first meeting. And um, the first person through the door was the 16-year-old boy with a brand new pair of shoes, and behind him came 14 other teenagers. And from there, the ministry blossomed. Every Sunday, more and more kids showed up. See, the kingdom of God is coming to an apartment complex in that city because one man sowed grace by giving away his shoes. No wonder God's kingdom is unshakable. It lasts forever. Father, teach us. Teach us what really matters in life. For we are prone to think that all the stuff that matters is the stuff of this world instead of the stuff of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.